Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Southern California and broadcasting worldwide on Wealth Radio. A tax lawyer prescribing a dose of truth for entrepreneurs. A voice of common sense for the small business owner. And don't get him started on saving taxes. This is the Mark Kohler Show. Mark Kohler Show. Kohler Show. Well, welcome everybody to today's show. My name is Mark Kohler. We're going to be having an incredible show today. Welcome to all those new listeners today. This is our open forum show where we talk about, gosh, all your tax and legal questions, concerns, thoughts. We're going to try to hit it all and do our best to uh, to wow you. Um, I've often been uh, a little... <laughs> nervous going into the open forum show that I'm going to, you know, get blindsided and I won't be able to uh, cover the topic properly. But, uh, you know, it, it it's actually become my favorite show. And it's become my, more of my favorite because I now have the amazing co-host, Matt Sorensen, who uh, adds just a, a whole new level of intellectual prowess. This guy is awesome. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, that, Matt, that's your cue to come in. <laughs> Intellectual prowess. Well, I feel good with that. You know, I need a little uh, something to get me going today. And that sounds good to me. I will, I will try not to disappoint, though. That's a, that's a high bar. Yes. Well, I'm just trying to keep up with Mark, and I like to punt all the tax questions to Mark. And uh, any, uh, you know, any slow pitch, team up, easy questions, just send my way. I got those. There you go. There you go. Well, we're, for those catching the podcast, we're so excited that uh, this has uh, uh, typically been a show that uh, you know that's had the Mark Polar brand for a few years. But uh, we are making the big announcement: July, the first week of July, the new Refresh Your Wealth show will be launching on AM stations in a number of markets around the country. Uh, we'll probably be changing the date and time, so that'll be. Uh, coming out uh, via email to our regular listeners that are on our newsletter and list and social media and blog and follow us already. But for all those new listeners out there, thank you so much for catching these older podcasts. We really, I think this this uh, open forum show is one of our clients' favorites because they get to learn from other entrepreneurs. It's kind of a, a fun time to uh, talk about all sorts of topics. Yeah, I think it's, and, you know, we get interesting questions, and I think a lot of times we get the benefit of being in a lot of consults with clients and hearing interesting questions and going through unique issues, and a lot of people never considered or or thought of how to deal with this, and so you get some unique perspectives, and we certainly get the benefit of that and try to share those experiences and the questions we get in the forum today and try and apply them to you and let you know, you know, can you deduct that? Is that legal? You know, we answer those questions. So inquiring minds want to know this stuff. So yeah, it's it's good stuff. Yeah, and uh, and the format, of course, every week, whether it's an open forum or not, we want to have a tax tip, a legal tip, and try to bring something new that's again fresh and cutting edge. We're meeting with a lot of uh, clients on a regular basis in the trenches. And you know what, Matt? I'm going to go off for a minute here. Okay, this is my bully pulpit. I'm going to I'm going to just let, you know, the Kohler Nation, I'm going to let this today. Oh, yeah, I'm going to throw it out. So, this is I wrote a Kohler rant, article. all right. Yeah, this is a Kohler rant here for a moment. 
uh, these are for those new listeners. This is this is uh, nothing new. But I I wrote an article magazine. Oh, it uh, I'll leave that unknown for now at this moment. There's a lot of my blog articles that get picked up here and there, and uh, it's a great publication. But uh, the uh, there was this professor from one of these uh, think tank schools that just went off on my article and. I have never heard anything so ludicrous. So I wrote an article, Matt, about the travel deduction strategy. What are the most mm-hmm. underutilized strategies for our clients? I mean, this is a big deal. If you jump on right. a plane, you're going to go somewhere for a workshop, meet with a client, and then you might pick up an extra day of personal time while you're there, or maybe there's some time that's half personal and you're there half business. Yeah, that's cool. I've, I've never had an IRS agent or a concern on uh, thousands of tax returns in our firm uh, going through this strategy of travel, and uh, and this guy just just thought it was ludicrous that you could take a trip somewhere, do some business, have some personal time, and then if it wasn't 51% of the time business while you were there, you don't get to deduct anything. And I'm like, you're kidding me? No, this is this is like, are you what planet are you on? Oh man, I was so mad. <laughs> this guy just now. What what was he a professor of? Do we know? <laughs> Yeah, he was teaching home ec, uh, and so uh, they were in the kitchen, and apparently, you know, his his cooking show travel. It's just like, it's one of those, you know, doctors, you know, I went and saw the doctor, a doctor of what? (laughs) I got a PhD in sociology, but. Well, this is the frustrating part, is that you have these uh, academic, you know, academia, or whatever you want to call it, you know, of all these professors that study the minutia of, you know, tax code, teach it to their students, and then guess what? We've got to go out there and make sense of it. The practitioners who actually talk to IRS agents, who actually prep returns and deal with the reality of what's audited and what's not and what's realistic, and it just it drives me insane. So I want to encourage all of you listeners out there that there's the practical and then there's the theoretical or academic approach, and I think it's really, really important that we're constantly careful and cautious and ethical in our approach, but we do what works. We take the practical approach and not this esoteric academia approach to our tax returns because we're leaving money on the table. So many people leave money on the table when they, they get scared off by these, these professors. It drives me crazy. Ugh. There you go, Matt. That's it. I'm done. All right. Done. Do you, you All the you time of death on that rent. Do you feel better? <laughs> Yeah, I feel better. I feel better. My therapist says, you know, bring us out. It's good to cleanse. So I was, you know, that was my cleanse. Um, All right. So well, I, well, I liked it. You know, that that is, I think, a lot of people don't understand entrepreneurism or going out and taking a risk. And you know how when you're running a business, you got to pull these pieces together. You got to learn some accounting. You got to learn some finance. You got to learn some law. You got to learn some all these, you know marketing and all these things you got to bring together. You're not just an expert in one thing and you got to bring all these things together, be practical, be reasonable. And in order to be successful, you got to have all those pieces brought together. So, um, I, uh, I, I feel your pain. I know, I know, I know where you're coming from. <laughs> Thanks. Well, let's turn to it. Before we get going too far into this again, this is the open forum show. We want to welcome everybody here that's with us live today. And, uh, every time you see the announcement for an open forum show, folks, even if you're following us on our newsletter or blog or social media, and you see an upcoming open forum show, you can always email your questions in in advance and then catch the podcast, and uh, hopefully we take your sh- uh, question on the show. You can email those questions to Matt or myself. That's Matt, M-A-T, one T, mind you, at kkoslawyers.com, K-K-O-S is in Sorensen, Lawyers, L-A-W-Y-E-R-S dot com, or myself, Mark, M-E-R-K, at markjkohler dot com. Uh, you can also email me, Mark, at KKOS Lawyers as well, but uh, it's just sometimes simpler to go Mark at markjkohler, K-O-H-L-E-R dot com, and send us an email, and for those uh, listening live, you can call in and leave a question on the uh, voicemail, or we'll pick it up in the studio, whichever comes first, and We'd love to have your question out here with us. Now, before then, we've got some tipsters. And so 
Uh, I'm excited to bring out on the show Rick Taylor, a regular contributor to our show. He's a CPA and working in the trenches, reviewing hundreds, if not thousands, working on thousands of returns uh, in our home office in southern Utah. So, uh, Rick, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Mark. Glad to be on the show again today. See, Rick is well, going to like making some record appearances for CPAs and Colin Air. He's going to be on the leaderboard. <laughs> That's what I'm going for. <laughs> he's on, he loves the pressure of being on live radio, so he's got to you know perform. Right. So yeah, you know, and yeah, this, this is unscripted. Yeah, we have no this idea. Is unscripted. What, what tip? <laughs> what do you got for us, Rick? Well, Mark, I'm actually glad you um, brought that thing up about the travel because um, a, a couple weeks ago when I was on, I talked about how we should. We should be our clients should be reviewing their tax returns, um, and that that goes along these these lines with the with the travel. Maybe you maybe you missed um, a, a conference that you went to because you got scared away by a professor um, that said you couldn't take the take the deduction for the the conference. Um, what I wanted to talk about today was actually amending tax returns. You know, after you review a tax return, maybe you find a mistake on it. Um, and the tax return needs to be amended. Um, the IRS allows us to go back and make corrections on tax returns. Um, I had a, um, I received a phone call from my sister-in-law uh, a few weeks ago, and she was all up in arms, all, all upset, and said, "Rick, I, I think I'm going to jail. I think I'm going to jail." And I said, "Okay, wait, calm down, calm down. What's going on?" And she said, "I, I missed a, I." I I did some babysitting last year, and I didn't put it on my tax return. I made about $400 in babysitting money that I didn't put on my tax return. Am I going to jail for this? <laughs> okay, calm down. <laughs> You're not going to jail for $400. And I explained to her the, the process of man, amending a tax return. Um, so, so that's my tip for today is if you see a mistake as you're reviewing your tax returns, it's okay to go back and amend the tax returns. Um, now you need to be careful if you're, because um, sometimes an amendment is for, in the government's favor. Sometimes it's in your favor. It's in if it's in your favor, there are some time restrictions on when you have to amend your tax return. So you have to be careful about that. And in your favor, you mean you're asking for the IRS to send you a refund check? Yes, that's exactly right. It's called a claim for a refund. <laughs> they they favor. love to do that. So yes, uh, they, they do actually write that check. <laughs> Um, and that, and that brings up a good point at, also is, is amended returns. The, the IRS actually looks at amended returns. Um, they scrutinize them a little bit more than just the regular run-in-the-mill e-file regular tax return. Yeah, and so let's hit that time uh, restraint. Uh, really, it's three years to amend a return, but a lot of people get that mixed up. And I'd like you to clarify, it's not three years from April 15th uh, three years ago, it's three years from when you filed the return or when it was due. Help clarify that for us. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The 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 dates can get kind of kind of messy. It's three years from the date you filed your tax return or two years from the date you actually paid your taxes. Um, that that's what the rules are. Um, so yeah, it can, it can get a little bit fishy on the the actual dates. So we need to be careful on that. But um, yeah, it's generally three years from the time you filed your taxes. Well, let's give an example here. I think there's a lot of um, listeners that if you've been catching our prior podcast where it's talking about um, travel deductions, paying your kids, picking up an Apple Watch, uh, writing off your laptop, maybe there's some home office deductions, it's, it's likely some of you that have even been doing your tax returns on TurboTax, you may listen to our show and go, oh, my gosh, I, I missed a write-off from last year or the year before. Um, that's a, a perfect opportunity to do this 1040X. And uh, I think if you go online to try to do your own amendment, you want to be a little cautious. I think what Rick said is that uh, there is a little more scrutiny from the IRS. So this is one where you just don't want to throw down a deduction if you don't have support. Now, we all know you might throw in an expense in your tax return that you paid for and you know you did and it's on your bank register, but you may have not have the receipt. So if you get questioned, well, so be it. You'll have to fight for your deduction. But if you're going to amend return, you better make sure you got the receipt. Because, I mean, Rick, yeah, you don't yeah. want to be getting too too aggressive, right? No, no, that, that that's exactly right. That's exactly right. You, you've got to um, 
be very careful with what you are amending because, like I said, the, the IRS does someone actually looks at an amended tax return at the IRS, whereas the, the e-file tax returns, it just goes into a computer and, and goes from there. So, yeah, that's hey, very what is the, uh, what What's one of the most common um, items you amend on a business owner or real estate investor's tax return? Someone may be doing it on them, by themselves, or uh, what's one of the most common things you'll typically end up amending? Usually it's um, either uh, an expense that's been missed. I mean that happens that happens frequently, or um, like a, if you if you receive a HUD, you know there's lots of HUDs in the real estate world, and a HUD is recorded um, wrong, um, and you have to go in and, and make the changes for for a HUD that, that got recorded wrong. That's probably the the most um, common mistake that's made from someone that's just um, doing trying to do it themselves. Well, and I would just say, what, some people might say the HUD. What's what's the you know, what the hell is the HUD? <laughs> that was kind of good. <laughs> that's anyway, the um, um, the, the, yeah, that folks is that big long settlement statement when you buy a property, and what happens is people will miss depreciation or deduct closing costs, and there's a lot of convoluted stuff on that HUD, and so you want to make sure uh, you get that right. So. This is good stuff, Kevin. Thanks for the tip. So amending returns, don't be afraid of it, but just make sure that if you're going to put your foot forward, you've got the support, and uh, go after those refunds. That's exactly right. I love it. Well, thanks so much, Rick. We appreciate it. Thanks for coming out and uh, for all you do. Okay. Thanks, Rick. All right. If you want to to hook up with Rick for a consult, of course, he's at uh, Kane ECPA, so you know how to reach us. Give us a click on the link and... uh, set up a little 15-minute interview to see how we could be of service or um, get him started on a consultation or prepping your return this fall, uh, spring, whatever. We'd love to help. Um, Kevin, so uh, as, as a regular contributor here, Matt, why don't you bring out Kevin here? You you know him a little better than I do, and I, uh, you're, you're in yeah, close quarters there. there. <laughs> <laughs> we, we are. We're cellmates. So um, Kevin and I know each other pretty well. No, it's, uh, <laughs> Kevin is here in the Phoenix office with me. Um, and Kevin's a very good business attorney, helps a lot of our clients, helps a lot of clients on our 401ks, setting up companies, a lot, working with a lot of business owners and real estate investors. So, um, Kevin, you got a tip for us? I want to know if something's legal or not. So um, give us your <laughs> tip, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask my question, is it legal to you? So be ready. Oh, wow. All right. Nope, do my no best. pressure. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to bring up something. Recently, I've had a few clients who have asked me the question, should I have a self-directed 401k or should I have a self-directed IRA? And typically, you know, we take the position that it depends, you know. Sometimes you don't have a choice. I mean, if you're not self-employed, you can't have a self-directed solo 401k. Now, there are many benefits to a self-directed IRA and there are benefits to a self-directed 401k. And typically they have many of the same benefits. You know, you can self-direct into real estate, privately held companies, precious metals, whatever. But what I wanted to bring up as my tip is if you are looking at an apples-to-apples comparison between the self-directed solo 401k and the self-directed IRA, there are a handful of benefits that the self-directed 401k has over the self-directed IRAs, the number one, greater contribution limits. So in 2015, you can contribute up to $53,000 into a self-directed 401k. $59,000 if you're 50 plus, so like Mark Kohler. What? I can't believe you threw down on that. I, that, that was oh a shot. What the heck? Were you just hey, if I was listening? You, you know, yeah, just rambling on, on, just rambling just seeing if you're listening, Mark. That's all that was. Yeah, Everyone I, knows I just want to let you know. 30s. Yeah, well, I just want you to let you know that while you were talking about your 401k, at least three people across the country fell asleep while driving or probably collided <laughs> in some car. <laughs> Go ahead. Just keep talking, you know. Yeah, but Mark Sanders, no one's listening to you. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why I, that's why I never get nervous. I take comfort because people people pretty much zone me out from my wife to everyone else. It's all the same. <laughs> All right, so then number two, yeah, sorry, Mark, everyone knows you're still in your 30s. Okay, so um, 
but greater contribution limits. If you if you need to grow your retirement account through large contributions, tip number one, you may want to consider the self-directed solo 401k. Number two is the 401k loan. So with the self-directed 401k, you can actually take out a loan of up to 50000 or 50% of your balance, whichever is less. And you can use those funds for literally anything you want. You could buy yourself a car. You could invest into a company uh, that you own. You could buy Matt a jet ski. Whatever you want to do, you'll have five years to pay it back. Um, so tip number two is if you need to access part of your retirement funds for personal use, you may want to consider, this is another scenario where you may want to consider the self-directed solo 401k. Um, number three, the uh, consequences if you enter into a prohibited transaction. So, Matt, I know this is your area, but basically I, I just wanted to point out the prohibited transactions, basically uh, one where your retirement account transacts with someone that's disqualified to your retirement account, such as you, your spouse, children, parents. Now, there are other prohibited transactions that are much more subtle and that involve um, matters like self-dealing. So you may not even know that what you did was a prohibited transaction. So my point here is that 401k, the penalties are less harsh. So if, if you're contemplating an investment, so tip number three, if you're contemplating an investment that's kind of in a gray area, you may be better off doing that out of a self-directed solo 401k just because the penalties can be less harsh than out of a self-directed IRA. All right, my last tip here, and I've, I've put everyone to sleep here. Um, I just fell off my jet ski, Kevin. But keep going. Yeah, you did. <laughs> hey, I'm not an I'm sorry, entertainer, did you, say you know, something? lawyers. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, you're 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 going you're going deep on these. Okay. Tip I know, four. I know. Go for it. All right. Tip four. All right. This is why yeah, you guys are the hosts. You guys are the entertainers. I'm just the, the drab attorney. Okay, so number four. Um no no UDFI tax for real estate. So, you know, one of the key strategies for those real estate investors as they know is the acronym OPM, other people's money. In other words, you know, leverage your purchasing power by taking out a loan. Well when it comes to investing in real estate with a self directed IRA and having your IRA take out a loan, which, as Matt tells people um, every day, has to be non-recourse, uh, which basically means you can't personally guarantee the loan. But the point is that you may be subject to a special tax called UDFI tax, which is basically you have to pay a portion of the um, uh, tax on the portion of your profits, which is somewhat unfortunate because it's a retirement account. Now, I just want to bring this up because Matt, I think, did an excellent webinar on this recently to kind of demystify UDFI tax, which I know most of you, some of you, this is just way too deep, and I apologize. But for those who are interested, I think it's important here to know that tip number four, if you're looking to invest in real estate with a retirement account uh, and you want to leverage that investment with debt, you may want to consider doing that out of a self-directed 401k because there's no UDFI tax. So that's it. Right. You guys are the experts on this. Anything Please, you are you add? done? All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. We just okay. lost ten, we just lost ten listeners during that tip. I want to let you know. I hope they come back. Hey, here's let me let me say this too on this. This is a very good substantive point and a really critical question that a lot of people have. I just gave a presentation this morning. Someone asked me that exact question. What I told them. We have a one-hour webinar, Kevin and I did, and Kevin was basically summarizing a one-hour webinar we just that we did about six months ago that goes over the solo K, compares it to the IRA, what are the benefits of a solo K, when to use it, when to use an IRA instead. And so it's a pretty complicated topic, really important for a lot of people, um, and those are some right-on-the-spot points about deciding between it. But I know it's hard to get in a quick tip like that, we do have a uh, a webinar on that. You can email Kevin. He can get your access to that. And Kevin's at Kevin at KKOSLawyers.com. We can send you the link. Um, you can also find it on our website. But a uh, uh, really important topic. And thanks, Kevin, for the very deep um, tip today. I know, All right. Thanks, I know someone appreciated it, and I know your mom. <laughs> it. Someone, my mom. Yeah, yeah, my mom. <laughs> I just want you guys to think twice before you bring me on. I, you know, maybe we shouldn't bring on Kevin. Yeah, anymore. he's a little too long. <laughs> that, that's the tip. Think twice before you bring Kevin on. So I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. See you guys. <laughs> thanks, Kevin. thanks, Kevin. All right. No, good, good support. 
Robert. I appreciate that. It's a tough topic, but an important one. We get lots and lots of calls about it. So yeah, he he had a, he chose a tough topic. We didn't assign that to him. He did that on his own fruition. Yeah. So it's, he, it's yeah, his own he, fault. Was, he went for like a, that wasn't a wild one. That was kind of like a, a four thousand level class or or whatever. You know, I mean, that was yeah. That was for seniors only. <laughs> that was brutal. <laughs> well. Um, Okay, no, good stuff, good stuff. And I recommend, again, folks, if you want to catch that one-hour webinar on that debate between IRAs or 401Ks and self-directing and which one works best for you, that webinar is awesome. It's Kevin, K-E-V-I-N, K-K-O-S, lawyers.com. Send them an email. They'll send you a link. Um, okay, well, Matt, should, should we jump into our questions? It's open forum day. Let's rock it, right? Yeah, let's get the show on the road. Okay, all right. Well, this is a question from Sergio, and uh, it's a uh, – a few sentences here, so let me get it out here. But I think I, I, I screened this question because it was a little long, but it really is powerful. I think this is important for many, many of our listeners, listeners to hear. So he says, hi, Mark. I'm a, um, um, he says, I'm afraid I might be too late for a week's show, but it, and you're not. You got it in here. And he says, um, I'm a W-2 employee, and I also have rental properties. Okay, very common. I understand, as explained by my very knowledgeable CPA team, Color and Air, thank you, Sergio, for that plug, that my passive <laughs> income losses are deductible against my active income, but they start phasing out at $100,000 adjusted gross income and completely phase out at one hundred fifty grand. So his passive losses from his rentals are phasing out. I also understand that these losses roll over indefinitely, until I can uh, actually use them as deductions, or otherwise I can realize those deductions once I sell any of the property, reducing capital gains, and so on and so forth. Great, Sergio. Good. That's important. However, my strategy is to hold indefinitely many of uh, these properties or do a 1031 exchange until the day I die. My children would then inherit the properties with a stepped-up fair market value at that time. And he puts in parentheses, cha-ching, which I agree. So with this strategy in place, I feel that I'm missing out on one of the great dimensions of owning rental property, and it's no longer available to me. These tax benefits and the ability to deduct passive losses are being lost, even though Uncle Sam so kindly provides them. Am I looking at this correctly? And if so, are there some strategies you would recommend on how I can reap the benefits of these losses? Um, uh, Note, I am not interested in reducing my AGI or active income. I would also uh, not qualify as a real estate professional being a W-2 employee. My wife is also a W-2 employee, so she does not qualify as a real estate professional either. Um, any suggestions? Well, um, Sergio, how, how do you love your wife? Uh, because uh, there, there may be a chance here uh, that you, uh, you could re- remarry a real estate professional and problem solved right there. So uh, that's, that's, a, that's a key strategy. Um, many of our listeners don't realize <laughs> that uh, if you or your spouse qualify as a real estate professional, those losses are completely deductible. So there's no passive loss carry forward, no matter what your income level is. So yeah, and for the Utah clients, if it's either one of your wives is a real estate professional, then that counts for all of you. <laughs> That's right. So yeah, <laughs> sorry, that was a little. That, that was a little Utah. Yeah, sorry, guys. Yeah, yeah. That extra dependent on your tax return to pay off in Southern Utah. little strategy there, we call. Um, but uh, sister-wife strategy. But here's the thing. So this is, Sergio, I would say this. Now, this is important for everybody listening. A lot of people go, well, Mark, my CPA tells me I'm not getting the rental loss right off. My husband or my wife, they don't qualify as a real estate professional. What do I do? I'm not even tracking my expenses because I don't see a benefit. Well, for those in that situation, and Sergio, I want to encourage all of you, continue to track your expenses, your travel to go check on your rental properties, continue to buy rentals where your kids are going to college, where your grandkids are, where you want a vacation. Buy rentals, track your expenses, because here's the key. That passive loss carry forward bucket, Sergio, I promise you, there's going to be a rental that you want to sell, harvest some profits, and take that money and buy another rental or use it for a health care expense, use it for retirement, use it for a college expense, I think you will find that you're not going to ultimately own every property until the day you die. You want that flexibility. And that passive loss carry forward bucket is your ace in your hand that you can throw down if you need to. 
So don't be frustrated. Just consider it a warm blanket, and it's out there, and it'll shield you from some future gains. I think you'll love it. Hi, Mark. I got a question here from... Dude, I love it. I didn't even... I mean, I didn't even have anything to add to that. Well, well well, thank you. (laughs) Thank you, fine, sir. (laughs) All right. Well, you throw down our next question here. All right, because we got two questions here from James. James says, I don't have the money to pay an attorney to set up an estate plan, um, even despite our estate planning Memorial Day special right now, which you can get an estate plan set up for 900 bucks for even a family, you and your spouse, with a trust, all the docs. But uh, even still, I don't have the money to set that up. I do have a make-your-own-living trust written by an attorney. Should I use this guy to set it up myself or wait until I have positive income to hire an attorney to do this? Ooh, so which one? The chicken before the egg. What do I do? So let me give you a quick advice, I'll, and we got a second part question here too. Um, here's what I would recommend, James. If you, um, I think a lot of people get in a situation where you're at where they fail to set up an estate plan for whatever reason, and maybe it's they don't have the money to pay an attorney, um, they haven't made a certain decision about something. And so they don't get the estate plan set up. What I would do is you're better off setting up something than not. And um, if you have a book or a guide, you could set it up. Make sure it's revocable so that you can change it at any time. Um, Now, I would caution people. I do not recommend you do this in general. If you later then have the funds, I would get that estate plan reviewed or I would set up a new estate plan that's going to... correct that old estate plan that you set up on by yourself and it's going to supersede it. But the failure to plan, I think, is the number one problem in estate planning and people doing a little bit of things, even if it's on their own, um, I think goes is better off than doing nothing at all. Because um, at least, and I have, I mean, I have probated cases. I've been to probate court where people have their own wills. I mean, I literally had a suicide note will case, if you can believe it. It was like a law school exam type question, but someone actually wrote down a will in a suicide note and um, really tragic story. But, um, but you know, those things can be upheld. Now, I just want to point out a couple things here. The number one problem, there's a couple, there's a, a lot of problems that happen when people do their own estate plans. But the number one problem that makes them ineffective is people fail to get them witnessed or notarized properly. And there's different requirements for different documents in terms of witnesses versus notary. And just make sure you're complying with the rules in your particular state regarding that so that the documents are effective. And um, and that's, uh, I mean, sure, knock yourself out. I'd probably hire an attorney if you could, um, even even us at our, our low rates right now. But... Uh, I say go on your own. What do you think, Mark? Do you disagree on this? I don't know. I don't know where no, you're I, going on this one, actually. Well, thanks. Um, I I would agree that um, I think it's important that you uh, try to do something because it can get uh, it can get ugly if you don't have anything at all. So try to write down something. And I was just going to say, when in doubt, um, get the witnesses and notaries. So if some of you are out there going to do a handwritten will this weekend and this this little show spurs you on to do it, which we would encourage all of you to at least have a handwritten will if you have nothing at all, um, make sure you get it witnessed and notarized just in doubt. You know, when in doubt, just go the extra mile. Um, it's funny, Matt, you make a good point that so many people procrastinate estate planning. Um, I was trying to be funny a year ago when we were doing our Memorial Day special. I put in there a joke that, if you want to get cryogenically frozen, we have a special provision for that so that if you, you know, that we unfreeze you later on, we can re, you know, we can unravel yeah. your will and trust. Yeah. And I had a client literally take me up on that. There is a association that allows you to, uh, uh, the, the company, you know, that will freeze you and they have a special estate planning provision for that. So uh, we took a year <laughs> to help this client through his cryogenically frozen section of his estate plan. And uh, the whole time I was thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, you're driving down, you know, the uh, the five freeway in L.A., and your chances of death are, you know, very high. You should, uh, <laughs> let's at least get something in writing. So 
anyway, folks, don't get hung up on uh, some weird nuance in your estate plan. Get something in writing. So good, good stuff. All right, second part to this question here. This is a, to a real estate question. Um, I'm looking to wholesale, flip some property in California using an assignment contract. Should I use a trust, LLC, S-Corp, or my personal name to do this? Matt, all you. Go for it. <laughs> I, was, I was like me teeing it up and waiting for oh. you, know, you to hit the ball. But let me well, – I'll, I'll hit it here quick. Okay. A couple of issues here, and, and this is why some of these questions may, may seem really easy, but there's all these nuances that can apply. What are you doing? What state are you in? Well, you know, how often are you doing it? And um, and sometimes you know these cookie cutter answers you'll get on the web or for some guru who really is just selling you something besides good advice. Um, you get these one you know answer. Everybody do this. Everybody do that. But let me let me give a little nuance to this answer. Sounds like an easy question. Okay, you're flipping property in California using an assignment contract. So I use a trust, LLC, S-Corp, or personal name. All right. First issue is liability. Let's think of liability. If you flip a property, there could be liability on there. If you're doing those on a regular basis and you get in the business of doing real estate, let me just tell you, you're going to want to have an entity. You do not want personal liability and a possible problems lingering out there of something happening and going bad on one property you did coming back to haunt you. So yeah, and let me interject, you know, uh, all of our California listeners, of course, the last thing you want to hear is us recommending that you get an entity for your transactions because of the minimum tax. California is one of the most expensive states on an ongoing basis. It's interesting. The filing mm-hmm. fees are terrible in states like Illinois and Texas, but once you pay that initial filing fee, the ongoing cost is not as great. California, they just kill you every year. But if you want to start doing these assignments in a trust to try to get around that or to try to be sneaky or use a land trust strategy, just know that once they figure out it's you, you're personally liable. So be careful trying to get around that annual tax. That's what I know you're, the, the listener's trying to do, yeah, and, and it's just right. very dangerous. The, so in other words, what we would recommend because of liability reasons is using an S-Corp or an LLC. Don't use the trust. The trust doesn't have asset protection. Um, don't use your personal name. That You know, you can have a personal liability. So the second part to that is taxes. What's the tax mm. situation? How much income are you going to be making? Are you going to be making more than 50 grand a year doing this? If so, you're going to want an S-Corporation. You're going to save on taxes in the long run by using the S-Corporation the Tax and Legal Playbook has a good summary of this. It's written by Mark Kohler. You can buy it on Amazon and uh, you know, <laughs> your finest bookstore. I picked mine up at Barnes & Noble a couple weeks ago. Um, so, but uh, Well, thank you, Matt. I appreciate consider, that plug. Yeah, you bet. So consider the S-Corp if income is coming in enough that uh, – so, again, this is where volume matters. And in that case, you're going to want to use the S-Corp for tax benefits. And also, you'll get the liability protection of the S corporation. Well, and you bring up a great, uh, you teed up for our next question. This is from Joe. Uh, He says, I really enjoyed the strategic wealth Alliance videos, which is our webinar series. You can check that out um, at markjcolor.com. And he says, I'm also reading your latest book, the tax and legal playbook and love it. So thanks Joe. That'll be the only plug. I promise listeners. (laughs) Uh, But this, I'm I'm just reading this guy's question. You know, what can I do? I got to read it. Yeah. You got, yeah. Um, I mean, we we need the context of the question. Exactly. We need the context. So he says, um, he says, as I read the portion of your book on S corporations, I particularly like the Kohler payroll matrix taking the country by storm. And I thought this might be a really interesting topic for you uh, on uh, the radio show. And could you please comment on what is a reasonable salary and how do you prove reasonable salary as this is a very contentious IRS topic? He also said, I'd like you to talk about S-Corp basis. <laughs> a lot of business owners don't understand the basis issues of S-Corps. Well, Joe, just as I had, uh, chided uh, earlier, uh, Kevin, for uh, his comments on um, the 401k, if you want to talk about S-Corp basis, I'll probably be liable for about four car accidents as people are listening to the show, and I'll put them to sleep. So uh, we'll, we'll reserve that for another day. <laughs> but let me mention this, uh, S- this S-Corp salary thing. 
as it relates to this last question um, that Matt brought up, when clients are flipping properties, they're a contractor, a dentist, a realtor, a broker, an attorney, a CPA, an engineer, selling a product, selling a service. Folks, all of you out there that are creating ordinary income and going to pay a self-employment tax, the S-Corp is your answer. It is so, so powerful. And it's been around for 30-plus years. People have been doing the salary, dividend, or net income K-1 split for all you academics in the college uh, arena that don't understand the practicalities of this. Uh, you know, again, please send your hate mail to mark at markjcola.com. But here's the thing. You've got to take a salary. It needs to be reasonable. And don't let your account – I was just giving a workshop in Salt Lake City on Friday. And a guy in the class was like, Mark, my accountant's making me take 50% dividend and 50% salary. And I was like, great. It's costing you thousands of dollars. How is it having your brother-in-law do your taxes? He's like, ugh. You know, what do I do? So anyway, <laughs> in the book, I, I go through the Kohler payroll matrix, and I talk about taking a reasonable salary. And I, I know, Matt, you have consults on this daily, and it just saves mm-hmm. people so many, so much money. Yeah. I I do it myself. I have an S-Corp and I use it myself. I do that strategy and um, it saves me money every year. I love it because of that. And, you know, I I think your Kohler payroll matrix is um, quite revolutionary, actually. And it is a simple way for people to understand how to do it and how to utilize it because there are some factors that you need to keep in mind. Um, But there's also, you know, there's a case on it that I have on my blog about the uh, salary dividend split, this this strategy, and um, what's the reasonable amount of salary to take. It was a, actually, of course, a CPA who was audited using an S-Corp strategy doing this. And it goes into a lot of these factors. So you can read the case. And, and the basics of the case from the tax court was, we think it's fine for people to do this. An owner of a business can take a portion of the money they're making in salary and a portion they're making in profits. Every large company does that. There are owners of that company that get a share of the profits, and there are people that work for it that get paid salary. And if you own an S-corporation, you can do the same thing. The salary just needs to be reasonable, and that's what the case really went into. And so um, the salary dividend split in that case was not overturned. It was adjusted. And so the strategy works. You just need to have a reasonable salary and uh, – and so it's it's alive and well. Don't stress out. I you know I hear the same thing sometimes from people too, Mark. But um, you know I love it. Like I said, I use it myself. Yeah, and I would <clears throat> last comment is in there. Let me give some practical advice. He said, "What is reasonable?" Where we start with this is some sort of percentage calculation initially, because it is subjective. So you want to look at um, the safe harbor which we have advocated for 10-plus years and never had a client audited where an IRS agent felt it was unreasonable, was where you start at about a third net income based on – that should be your salary is about a third of your net income. Um, Now, if you're making less than 40 or 50,000, that might scale up to 50%. If you're making more than $100,000 or $200,000 net income, that may scale down to a 25 or a 30% 30% uh, calculation, but we're going to be in that 30 to 33% range, and then we're going to look at, do you have other employees? Um, what is your occupation? What part of the country do you live in? Uh, what, how, much, how many draws are you taking? Are you in, reinvesting all of your profits? So um, this is something that if you feel, folks, your accountant is being really, really anal about and uh, tough, um, you want to get a second opinion because you could definitely leave a lot of money on the table. Um, so, Matt, do you have a question you want to throw down, or I've got some here that just flew in? Yeah, go for it. I was just looking through my email to see what questions I have here. I don't have one queued up yet, so you got one? Let's hear it. Okay. Well, um... And keep in mind, if anyone wants to call in, just just throw this out there. If you want to call in to be on the show, you know, you do get priority. You can call in to be on the show at 646 Two hundred four two eight five, and ask the question live on the show. Yeah, I love it. Um, Matt, this is a question up your alley, and then we'll jump back to some tax topics, but this is another 401k uh, strategy question. Uh, this is from Dennis. It says, I currently have about 50000 in a 403B from a previous employer. 
I would like to roll this into something that is more accessible so that I can continue to contribute and also borrow against it and or invest in real estate. <laughs> Anything else, Dennis? World peace? But anyway, so I'm trying to sort out the differences between a self-directed IRA and a solo 401k. If you can somehow simplify the pros and cons, perhaps I could figure out what to do next. Great show. Now, of course, earlier in the show, we talked about some of the pros and cons, the pros of using a self-directed 401k versus an IRA. We already covered that. But Matt, why don't you mention something about this 403b? Uh, folks that have these older yeah. retirement accounts, what, what are their, what's their strategy there? Yeah, so the 403b is basically a government pension plan. That's probably you work for a government agency, whether it could be city, state, or maybe a nonprofit. Um, those are typically people who, who have 403B plans. But those can be rolled over to an IRA or it can be rolled over to a solo 401K. And as uh, Kevin kind of talked about in the tip, which hopefully you, you were able to catch, um, first you this question. Um, the solo K would be a great option if you are self-employed now. So if you've left that employer and now you're self-employed, the solo K would be a great option. Or maybe you have another employer, but you have some business on the side you could establish your own 401k for your own business or self-employment, roll that 403b money over, start contributing to it. You could even take the loan provisions out so you could have access to that, as you mentioned you wanted. That would be a good option. And uh, Kevin, as we talked earlier, would be a good resource for that. Kevin at kkoslawyers.com. We do have that hour-long webinar that I'd highly recommend that goes over the solo k and the self-directed IRA in choosing between it. But uh, all these prior retirement plans, if it's a prior employer plan or you had an IRA somewhere, I mean, those can be rolled into other IRAs or rolled into a 401k if you set up a solo K for your self-employment. Um, so those plans are not stuck. Um, if you've left that employer, you're typically able to move it into a new retirement plan, which could be self-directed. Love it. Great comments, Matt. Okay, we've got some tax questions. This is from Daryl. He says, uh, can you please comment on the following write-offs and make a few comments? Um, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit to, to tee this up. Um, first, his was auto insurance as a write-off. Um, auto insurance is only going to be a write-off if you're using the actual method. So the mileage method versus the actual, uh, as we talked about on this show before, as we've dedicated some shows to the auto production strategy. Maybe we should do that, Matt, in the near future. But um, the auto strategy for asset protection and which, best, uh, which way to write it off is a big topic. But I will say this to everyone. 90% of our clients use the mileage method. It's a great write-off. This year it's 56.5 cents per mile. That's on every vehicle you own that you can justify business mileage. Um, but auto insurance is only going to be deductible as part of an actual method, whether you're leasing or you have the SUV or truck strategy. So um, – if you have your company pay your auto insurance, fine. But at the end of the year, I'm going to journal entry it off and replace it with mileage. And it's always going to be more and better. Number two, he says professional clothing as a real estate professional <laughs> and a write-off. Well, uh, if you want to buy that Century 21 gold jacket, that will be a write-off <laughs> because it would be con <laughs> it will be considered a uniform. Um, you may be proud to you know wear that jacket to all of your meetings. Um, I don't know how many Century 21 uh, agents still wear a, their gold jacket. But unless it's considered a uniform and required by work or it's logoed or labeled, um, your clothing is generally not going to be a write-off. I wrote some uh, a great blog article. I thought it was great uh, in the last month or so. Check out my blog as I go into detail as how to write off clothing and what qualifies and what doesn't. Uh, Matt, I'll throw this one out at you. He just said quickly, too. Daryl just threw out these three or four questions. I think these are great. He said, what's included yeah. in a typical estate planning package? So as we talked about estate planning a moment ago, and we kind of beat around the bush here, what, what, what's normally in an estate plan? Yeah, there's a great question, I think. And that's when you're doing an estate plan, and this is, we should maybe even clarify for this person who was going to go it alone maybe and do their own estate plan. There's a number of documents you want to include. One, the trust. That's typically involved. The trust document says, you know, who's your beneficiaries, your heirs, who's getting your estate, what conditions you have on the estate, who's the trustee, the person who's going to administer that estate after your passing. Then you're also going to have a will still. The will is going to indicate 
if you have minor children, who's going to be the guardian of those children after you, you're passing or you and your spouse is passing as applicable. If you have some powers of attorney, for example, a health care power of attorney, if you're sick or in the hospital and you can't make a medical decision for you, you'll have someone appointed to be your medical power of attorney and your health care power of attorney. You also have a financial power of attorney. If you're unable to make decisions, you're incapacitated, you don't have a proper mental state, someone could make uh, decisions for you using the financial power of attorney. It could transfer property or access bank accounts or take care of your finances. Um, the other document that's important, too, is your living will. Sometimes this is called the pull-the-plug document. And this is an important one where you indicate, do I want to be removed off of life-sustaining support? You know, if I'm in a vegetative state and doctors say I'm, there's no chance of recovery, do I want to be removed and have the plug pulled or do I want to be on vegetative support? And, you know, we have pe- most people decide they don't want to be in a vegetative state. We have some people that say, I want to be, you know. And, um, and so that's less common, but but you make that decision. And that's one that's important to make because you don't want to have to have a family member or a loved one make that decision on your behalf if you're in that situation. And, and we've had clients in that scenario, and it's it's a tough one. So, um, But those are some of the main documents you'll see in the estate planning package, and, and those are all really critical and serve each independently an important purpose. Yeah, and I think it relates back to that question earlier in the show where, um, a caller said, well, should I just do my own trust uh, based on this book? I would probably lean again towards just doing a handwritten will. So if something happened to you, everybody knows where you at least want your stuff to go. Um, and then when you have the money to uh, invest in a quality plan that has all the pieces and parts, which shouldn't cost you more than 1000 to $1,500 at most, um, there, you know, step up to the plate and do it right, and it'll last the rest of your life, and you can uh, amend it on a regular basis, which I think is another question here. This is from Thomas. I saw this a little a moment ago. Uh, he said, how often should I review an estate plan? I'll, I'll just say, Thomas, whenever there's a major life change, uh, child, children leaving the, the home, um, a remarriage, uh, someone passing away, you hate the guardian that you were going to have raise your kids and you don't trust them anymore, your kid's on drugs, whatever, you know, some major change. But I think every five years uh, you should have kind of a review meeting with your attorney. Just go through it. It takes about a half hour and see if there's anything that you would want to update. So kind of a related question. Another one here. um, Oh, Matt, did you want to say something? Yeah, I got got a question here. Let me me jump in on one and then I'll... I'll, uh, Turn the time back over to the distinguished gentleman from California. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> thank you, Steve. You're calling me old. I'll, thank you, Steve. I will yield the balance of my time. Um, this is a, this is a question from Jill. Um, I have a deal that I'm finalizing. Um, I invested with someone else. They're paying me off. Um, we had to uh, negotiate the payoff amount. It sounds like they got a reduced amount and I'm going to be short some of the money I'm owed, should I accept that money and then sue them for the balance? What should I do? Oh, that would be nice. (laughs) I think there's going to be a little provision, Jill, in your settlement agreement when you take some money that you will accept that as full payment. Um, Rarely are you going to uh, uh, have the ability to go after more money once you accept some sort of quote-unquote settlement. If, if that's typical, Matt. I mean, is that what you're reading into this, this question, too? Yeah, yeah, that's a, a big caution. If you're going to accept money in terms of this payoff, um, which it sounds like it's going to be a reduced amount, and then sue them for more of what you feel is owed, or what may be very clear in the documents of what is owed, you want to be very careful that your documents are going to allow that. And if you're signing anything and accepting the money, this could be considered something in, you know, for the legal term called accord and satisfaction. That, that could be relied upon by the person paying you that says, hey, we paid you, this is final payment, they write final payment on the check, and you can have a big dispute about whether that was an agreed-upon final payment, you endorse the back of the check, you know what I mean, and then you know, it gets into this big dispute. So um, be careful in that scenario. I'd really, The documents are critical. If you're signing anything and accepting that money, be careful. Look at what's actually written on the check. Be careful about that. Um, so uh, tread carefully here because you, it is likely you will miss out the opportunity to sue them for the balance. But you may be able to accept it and still sue them for the balance. It's just uh, um, if you're 
planning on that, having that option still available to you, I highly recommend having an attorney review the documents and and uh, any settlement papers that may be uh, used in in getting that final payoff. Yeah, and we're we're a boutique firm helping clients around the country. There's um, five attorneys here. Um, any one of us could review a settlement agreement quite quickly and uh, tell you if there's some red flags or some odd provisions. So um, uh, find someone you trust to, to look at that. Uh, another question from Daryl here. He says, how much can I pay family before having to report it? Well, paying family members, uh, if you're new to the show, is, is a huge topic we love. It's a chapter in my new book, again, uh, that I really dedicate some time to because it's, it's a great tax strategy and financial strategy to help ch- your children learn about money, to help them save for college, to help them start a business, to teach them the principle of work ethic, and to get a tax write-up. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so many entrepreneurs do not take advantage of this strategy. But to answer Daryl's question specifically, uh, this year the uh, standard deduction is for is $6,250. Um, now, um, there, there's a lot of variables here. If your children are under age 18, they don't have to file a tax return if they make less than 6250 in earned income. Now, you're going to take a deduction on your Schedule C or out of an LLC. Uh, read the ch- chapter on this in my book. Uh, it's absolutely critical. There's a lot of moving parts. But to answer it specifically, 6250 is where your child is not going to have to file a tax return. Now, you can pay them as much as you want, and take a deduction for it and disclose, of course, how much you're doing. If your kids are over age 18, you're going to use a 1099 or a W-2. But if your kids are under age 18, you're just going to call it outside labor. You're not required to withhold Sudafuda FICA or workers' comp. It's a wonderful way to go. And if some of you are listening to this are like, oh, my gosh, I've never thought of paying my kids. I need to get them more involved. Uh, It's just so powerful. And on this note, I'm just going to throw this out. My daughter, Allison, is going to prom this weekend. Matt, um, of course, many of you around the country may already be out of school. Here in California, they kind of keep you in school into June gloom because the clouds are still over us, so no one wants to go on the beach anyway. But um, she's going to prom this weekend, and just yesterday she needed the tickets, and she's working on her dress today. And I said, she goes, Dad, can you help me out? I'm like, sure. She's a senior. This is her senior prom. So I paid her out of the business for some of the services she's providing, and I'm taking it. She will get a 1099 at the end of the year because I paid her more than $600. And I just took a tax write-off for her to go to prom. So instead of me paying taxes in my bracket, which is a little higher than my 18-year-old, I'm going to 1099 her, and then she's going to claim that income on a 1040EZ. And uh, there may be a little self-employment tax for her because it's a 1099, but it's far less than my income tax rate, and she's not going to pay income taxes until she makes more than seven, well, sixty-two fifty. Um, so it's big. This is huge. So, you know, when I'm taking those prom pictures this weekend, Matt, I'm going to be a little happier. I'm going to be a little bigger <laughs> grin on my face. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, dads, dads usually are not happy during prom. Dads, at least, have daughters. I should say, my daughter went on prom. You know, this year was her first year, so uh, I know your pain. Um, and I did clean my gun, of course, uh, when he came to pick her up. But, um, well, you know, I'm glad you can have some satisfaction out of your daughter going to prom. There's some yeah. some benefit there, it sounds like. Some ancillary benefit. Well, I, we've come to uh, the close, uh, close to the end of the show here. I want to say any of you that sent in a question that we were unable to get to, we will be um, trying to cover a few questions every week. Uh, we are launching our new show format. Man, Matt, July 1, the first week of July. It's going to be exciting. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a month away, so yeah. be much touted. Um, I know the critics are very excited for the new show, um, and uh, I just hope that the Mark Kohler Nation really gets on board with it. Yeah, it's going to be good. Well, folks, we're going to be doing give, giveaways in the show. Uh, we're going to have some uh, some random questions during the show where you can win a free book and um, uh, several different prizes each week. So please mention it to your family and friends. And uh, please send in your questions on a regular basis. We'll cover a few questions every week. There will be the dedicated open forum show on a regular basis, and we have incredible authors and guests and experts from around the country join the show on a regular basis. So we're not going anywhere. This is going to rock. It's going to be good. 
Lincoln. Looking forward to it. Thanks, everyone, for being here on another episode of the Mark Kohler Show with your co-host, yours truly, Matt Swanson. Yes. Thank you, Matt. And thank you, all of our listeners. And we'll see you next week for another round of Building Wealth and Protecting Your American Dream. Thanks. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.